You know, we say we don't chase pitcher wins, but yeah, we kind of do. I'll talk about that and a whole lot more with Jason Collette from Rotowire next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 4th. It's show number four of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday expert edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Jason Collette, who writes the Collette Calls column at Rotowire. We'll talk about if we can chase wins, should chase wins, and how at least to chase wins methodically. Also, chasing stolen bases, and how changes in the game have meant changes in our approach to those shifty bags. And Boons and Banes are back. Jason has a few names worth noting there as well. It's another big Friday expert interview edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? They may not be talking, but we're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette. Collette Calls columnist at Rotowire. Jason Collette, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio and welcome to a brand new season. Yay, thanks for having me back. How are you doing? I'm doing fine and I, I should say a, fa- a, a brand new fantasy season because there's certainly no guarantee that there's going to be a season and it's, it certainly hasn't started yet. So fingers crossed about that. Uh, how many drafts are you playing this year and how have they been going? Uh, see, I am in my fourth draft uh, and those have all been through NFBC. Uh, I have AL Labor tonight. I have AL Talent in two weeks, and then I have two home leagues. So if the math is correct, that makes eight. Uh, so I'm half. I'm, this is the uh, the midway point. I'm, I'm number draft number four with TGFBI, and then I've got the other four uh, uh, expert and then local leagues, and then I am done, and then we wait. Hopefully not too long. Hopefully not too long. Exactly right. <laughs> How have the drafts been going? Uh, I've, I've liked them. I mean, they've been, uh, the first one I did was a DC 50 and, uh, picked third. And then I did, uh, a draft, a draft champions picked, picked third. And that one ended up going 15th in, uh, a league with the Roto junkie folks. Uh, and I'm picking first in TGFBI. And each one's been a different experience, but, uh, I really do enjoy. Yeah. I obviously live drafts are the best. Uh, but if you can't do live drafts, you know, this is the way this has really helped uh, pass the offseason time, especially the draft and hold getting those 50 and and, and somebody who plays single league formats. When you get into a 50, uh, 50 round draft and hold, you know who those players are on pick 724 because you have to take them in, in your AL or NL only. So they're not like it's not like shocking how, how barren the player pool is down there, because that's what you're used to in an AL or NL only. Are you pay- playing in the Raz Slam uh, draft and hold? I've never done that because I don't care for the format. Uh, so I, I am very traditional in, in my fantasy pursuits. I avoid points. I avoid head-to-head. I, I haven't done best ball. I haven't done cut line. I haven't done any of those things. I'm very much uh, traditional roto, uh, not the five-by-five. Five. I'm you know a big proponent of OBP. Uh, in one of my home leagues this year, we're pushed, we went to decisions. So a category is saves plus wins plus holds. Um, rather than differentiating it out, we want to be a little different. So I'm, I'm very progressive as far as that, but as far as the game type, just a big fan of the Roto. 
Me too, but I play Razslam just because I, I think it's interesting for from a, a writer's point of view or an analyst's point of view to play that format because it seems to be really popular. And it it is surprisingly yeah. different. You know, when, you, when you're looking at, from a roto perspective, you're always looking for, oh, that guy's got a lot of steals. Right. And then you think to yourself, well, wait a second, how does that translate into points? Because that's the only thing that matters. And so you don't have to worry about drafting a balanced roster. If you, just, you could just load up on home runs and ignore steals, for that matter, because uh, uh, home runs are worth more. And so why wouldn't you, right? right. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people enjoy Raz Slam. I seem to be in the minority. And not that I haven't, I haven't tried it. That's the thing. I just It's just one of these things where I look back. If I'm trying to cut back, I'm going to cut back on something that's out of my comfort zone. Uh, and that format's out of my comfort zone. So yeah, that's why I haven't participated. I hear that too. Uh, you mentioned that you're drafting at the uh, 15 slot in one of your drafts. I know that you're drafting at the number one wheel in TGFBI. How do you like drafting at the wheel and what do you think it does as far as uh, setting up your strategy and tactics? I mean, I liked, I like, I'm enjoying one more than I did 15. Uh, so I picked, I picked 15th in the, in the Roto Junkie League and I took, uh, I, I went pocket aces strategy there uh, and I felt like the rest of it. And I wrote up a little bit of this in one of my recent articles uh, uh, at Rotowire, but talked about how I felt like I was chasing speed because I, I opened up with um, in that particular league, I opened up with uh, Woodruff and Bueller, uh, not the uh, forget the exact order, but then the rest of the league is like, okay, I let, I didn't pick again until 45th. And then, you know, with closers being pushed up, felt I had to address that. And then I was just trying to build speed. And some of the picks I ended up making were with the intention of, of, of building that speed versus the versus the player I really wanted. Um, whereas picking one, I've enjoyed it. You know, you start off with Trey Turner and then you, you don't have to worry about speed as much. Now, then again, I'm not going to let Trey Turner be the sole guy on my team that's running um, because like most people who had Mondesi last year, you lose him and then all of your steals are gone. So you've got to do something there. Um, but I started with him and I've enjoyed, I've been sniped a few times. So I, even in, as we headed into the end of the 12th round, yeah, I had Luis uh, Urias, uh, Andrew Benintendi and Gene Segura at the top of my queue. I was looking for a specific set. All three of those guys went in three of the four picks right before me. Uh, so then you have to be able to adjust, but I, you know, for the most part, I've avoided being sniped on what I've wanted. Um, the guy in this two spot has got me twice in the last four rounds. Um, so, but I, I like one better than 15. Uh, I picked three twice this uh, season. Both of those builds started with Jose Ramirez, who I honestly contemplated taking first overall in this league, um, as well, but wanted to diversify my portfolio there a bit, because if you, you know, if something happens to him, then I'm dead in three leagues. So at least I'm like, okay, I'm going to go with chalk and take Turner, but I honestly considered taking, uh, taking Ramirez there one, one. Yeah, that's an interesting conundrum. I've come up. Uh, I'm doing two leagues simultaneously right now: Raz Slam and uh, and the TGFBI league. And every so often, it'll come to down to two or three players, and I've got one of them somewhere else. And it, the first thing you think of is it'll be easier to root for this team if I have or both teams if I have a lot of guys yeah. in common. But then the other thing is the the risk that you mentioned is you lose the guy, you kill two teams with with one injury, and that I guess uh, as a risk management exercise. It makes sense to diversify. When you uh, talk about being at the turn or near the turn one three fifteen, is that by design? Do you pick that in your Kentucky Derby entries, or are you just lucking into them? Yeah. So the KDS I've set up the way I've set up KDS this year for all of these is I've said one through seven and then fifteen backwards. Uh, so I have uh, that's just how I've I've set it up because I like the 
I really like the front seven. And then I like picking at the end because I don't really know what I want to do in the eight, nine, 10, 11. But if I can, I do like getting towards the ends because it allows you to, uh, you know, it, it allows you to put some strategies together. And if you listen to, like, if you look at labor, I was on with, with, with Jeff Erickson and Fred Zinke the other day, and we were talking about that because Fred was picking second. And there were times where he was like, okay, I'm going to pass this guy and hope that Zach Steinhorn was picking on the end. And I hope that Zach doesn't take this guy uh, because he's already got, like, he's already got a, a first and th- a corner. So he's probably not going to take this guy. So let me do that. So I like that part of the strategy uh, with that. Um, you know, being in the middle is nice. So you don't have to worry about how long it takes to get back to you. I mean, there have been a couple of times in TGFBI where I've made two picks for the entire day. And there's been some where I've made six. Um, and so it's a long wait. You see, you have, like I said, I had my queue and I, we're down. I'm, I'm four picks away and the top three guys in my queue are still there. And they were boom. And then somebody took somebody I wasn't looking at. Then boom, boom. And I was out walking and my phone alert says, hey, you're on the board. And I pull up my queue and I'm like, oh, man, they're all gone. What happened? <laughs> so uh, but it's you know, you have to you have to have plans A, B, C, D and E. Um, and so I do like being able um, to look at it and say, you know, I got these. I can take both of these guys um, at the same time. Don't have to worry about which one do I choose here. So there's some benefits of it. Um, I wouldn't mind picking in the middle, but I'm really of, of the four spots I've picked that. So the four drafts, I'm enjoying this one spot those so far yeah it's pretty easy to like a spot where you get uh, Trey Turner to start your draft uh, as opposed to me in my 15 slot in TGFBI uh, I took Manny Machado and Ozzy Albies at the turn because that's basically the two top steel guys and we're going to talk about speed in a minute and you yeah. mentioned it but I wanted to try to get some speed started but you really feel like you're in a hole but on the other hand the advantage of it I think is when you're at the turn depending on how the league has been shaping up you're really in a position to kind of manipulate the the round that's coming in front of in front of your second pick and right. uh, to give you an example on my team I deliberately drafted Um, after the top two closers, top three closers were gone, I deliberately drafted two closers in a row just to try to start a run going back the other way, which I thought might help me the the next time my turn came up because so many people would have been worried about trying to get the rapidly dwindling supply of closers that was going on. And it it halfway worked, I'm going to say. I think people still have their own ideas about what they want to do. And it seems like the way they're reacting to shortages in, in particular positions or particular categories mm-hmm. is they just seem to be ignoring it and going on with what they're doing and, and I'll fix it later kind of a kind of a thing. So uh, I, I, I guess the wheel has its advantages and disadvantages and they're, they've been well studied. Uh, do you ever, have you ever deliberately... F- taken a middle slot or found yourself in a middle slot uh i have taken a middle slot in previous years uh it really honestly it really depends where the where the player pool's sitting but there have been times where i'm like wow i'm I'm not having to worry about being on the end uh but for the most part even if even if i set the middle spot in kds i still end up towards the end i don't know what it is and so this year i had a one to seven and you know, one time it was like, hey, you're 15th. And the other times it was like, hey, you're third. And then I was surprised when this time it popped up and said, you're one. Um, I mean, the other piece about that is at some point you have to, you know, when you have such you know, 30 picks between you, sometimes you have to take, if you're eyeballing somebody, and you're looking at, like I'm looking, I've got, we're two picks away from me uh, and I've got 210 and 211 here. And I'm going to jump ADP on somebody based on a position and need that I'm looking for. Um, and it's going to set the new min for the TGFBI for him, but I don't care. Uh, and we're going to talk about him in a minute. But it, we're at, 
you know, in the 14th, 15th round at this point, I don't care anymore um, where those things are, uh, because I know that this guy's not going to make it back as I look to see how this, how some of these teams are building out and they're all going to be targeting the same guy. So if I jump and get them now, that's fine. Uh, and you know, we talked earlier about the diversifying portfolio in, in these deeper drafts. It's the back half of my draft that has a lot of similarities. Like I, I have like eight or nine players that I have hundred percent shares of. Um, across all three leagues and now that'll probably stay 100% in this one and a, and a few of them um, but it's the front half where it's all over the place I don't have too many I have you know two Jose Ramirez those types of things but I have a lot of variety on my teams in the front half because I like to see how things built how things are um, playing out in the draft but in the back half when it gets to a certain point there are guys I believe in guys I want to target and those are the guys that I'm getting and if the ADP says I'm around early I don't care I'm with you, and that's another effect I found of being at the wheel is that because of the gigantic weight that you have, uh, 30 picks, you basically have to be willing to go outside the ADP range to get a guy you think you might like to have because he's definitely not going to make it back to you. I had uh, I made a choice very early in my draft. I wanted to get Joe Musgrove because Eno was touting him all over the place, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I made my first couple of picks, and then I picked Will Smith with my with my third round pick which is at the uh at the end of the round and i thought i'd like to get joe musgrove but i don't think i'm going to because drafting two spots in front of me is eno and you know one of the hazards of uh, being in talking about your picks in public i guess Um, but i'm going to ask you to do it anyway you mentioned you have these this core of players that you like in the back half of your drafts give us a couple of examples yeah so back there uh Back in the, I'm trying to think of some of the guys that I have multiple shares of. And again, remember, I've done, I have done um, 50 round drafts uh, heading into this. So most of these have been very deep. So the, the players that I have 100% shares of, uh, when I look at it, are Miguel Yahure, Griffin Canning, Michael Lorenzen, Chad Pinder, Rugnet Odor, Jorge Ocala, uh, Andrew Heaney, and Cesar Hernandez. Those are the folks that I have. And just about all of those around, in fact, all of those are around 20 or later um, in that. But that's those are the guys that I have been taking 100% shares of uh, in that. And yeah, I wrote an article in October about Heaney being a good candidate for being this year's Robbie Ray. You can see it in the collect calls column at Rotowire um, about it. And Cesar Hernandez, I look at it and I'm like, wow, he's got a good history of getting on base. He's hitting in front of Juan Soto. That could be really nice for his runs. I mean, he's just coming off a, a career power year. So he's got some abilities there. Rugnet Odor as a, as a volume guy. I'm a constant believer in Chad Pender. Go look at the stat cast data. Go look at the hard hit. I mean, go look at what that guy can do. He just got to stay, he's got to stay on the field. Uh, and this year in Oakland, if they do sell and start gutting the team, he could fall into some opportunities. And so I like, I, I like Pender. And then I want to see what the angels are going to do on their pitching staff. And so I've taken two different options there. And finally you hurry, um, maybe the second best pitcher in Pittsburgh. It's not saying much, but he may be the second best pitcher in Pittsburgh. I have him on my list as well, again, because of, you know, and it's got me worried that, you know, I'm going to get sniped again because I'm kind of playing chicken with him and I'm sure with others about when, when do you want to commit in a very competitive draft like this to a, to a yeah. unknown quantity like Yahure, I, I, I don't know, it'll, it'll all depend, but uh, yeah, I really like him. I like all the guys you mentioned, actually, they're on a lot of my lists as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Jason Collette from Rotowire. And uh, multiple podcasts, I guess, is the fairest way to say it. Uh, at Rotowire, you mentioned your Colette Calls column, and you had a recent one about chasing wins, and you called it the elephant in the room that we don't talk about enough. Why is that? 
I think, you know, like this winter, there's been so much attention to the saves and, and how saves are getting pushed up in drafts because well, there's so much uncertainty about who's going to be where. Uh, and then speed, which is the other thing I wrote about recently, which we're going to talk about as well. But I haven't seen too much conversation about wins. And we're just coming off the season. You know, the in 2020, it was, yeah, it was a short season, but we nearly had as many wins going to relief pitchers as we did starters. It was 52 to 48 split. And then this year, it went 55. This past year, it went 55 45, which, like, okay, it's going back the other direction. But understand, it used to be you got two wins to a starting pitcher for every relief win. And now we're getting, you know, we're not that far from a one to one ratio. Uh, but I haven't seen too many teams. Like, how do we balance that as we try to draft our teams? Because, you know, we have innings limits, you know, thousand, it could be 900, 950, 1000, whatever that is. And you've got to make sure you have enough strikeouts. But at the same point, if, if you see, the amount of wins that are sitting out there, like we talked about at the AFL in Arizona, about how many wins were sitting out there that were that were inactive wins, either either on your bench or on the free agent pile, and just how many of those are sitting out there, and they're in their relief pile. And so, if you're sitting there and you got five starters, um, and you and you have three relievers, do you chase a six? Do you chase a six starter who's got very questionable skills, or do you go for a middle reliever on a team who has showed habits? that are beneficial to a guy picking up middle relief wins. And so take a look where traditionally, I know a lot of guys will draft six, three, seven, two on their starter relief uh, ratio. What about going five, four, because the market you know, with all these wins going to relievers, if you can, if you can score the right dart and get the Brett Suter, get the use Mero Petit. This is last year. You know, the stickiness of this year over year is not great, but you know, those types of guys, this year's Chad Green, those types of things. And all of a sudden you can get more wins from that guy than you were going to get out of the guy, you know, let's say Miguel you hurry. You know, I like the stuff, but it's Pittsburgh. He may win five, six games, but if I can get a middle reliever that could win nine or ten, you know, that's an advantage, especially in a single league format where every win counts. Also, you're protecting your ratios much better with the relievers in that scenario than you are with a, a fifth or sixth starter type quality guy because, and this goes back to Ron Chandler's Lima plan back in the, you know, when Tris Speaker was running around, I think. And and <laughs> it does make sense, you know, that as long as you can make the innings minimum, which is a pretty big elephant also to be talking about when you're thinking about this strategy. But obviously the relievers that are getting into those high leverage situations are the guys with terrific skills and the guys their managers trust the most. I had used Merrill Pettit on my tout American league team last year and not only 10 wins, but terrific ratios. I know that the number of innings is small. So the impact of the terrific ratios is reduced, but I mm -hmm. also think you have to subtract what you didn't put on your roster in that reliever slot, which would have been a fifth or sixth starter and a guy who's going to hang a four seventy one forty on you in a lot of innings. And you go, goody, goody for me. I got lots of innings. Yeah, baddie, yeah, baddie for you that you got a whole bunch of really terrible ratio innings, even if you picked up a few strikeouts. And you don't get that many strikeouts. The thing is, you have to adjust for that. Like, Petit, uh, Petit had seven of his wins in the first six weeks of the season. That's the thing. It's like you can't, all of a sudden, he's in all these games, and then all of a sudden you're thinking, wow, maybe he can win like 16 games of relief. That's where it's, you know that's where the game has changed. Every now and then we'll get one or two relievers that'll get double-digit wins. But he had so many wins right out of the gate. You're like, okay, what's going on here? The problem is they burned him out. Uh, and that then Oakland shifted. Bob Melvin then shifted and then started leaving his starters out there. And so you looked at last year, like, which teams had I their remember. starters work deeper in the games. It was Cole Irvin. It was um, Sean Manaya and Jesus Lazardo. I mean, those guys were working before they traded Lazardo. 
Um, but you know, these are the guys, uh, and I, I bring this up in the article about how deep Oakland pitchers were working into the game. But you have to consider that for this year because now Bob Melvin's in San Diego. So is Mark Kotze going to do that with their pitchers? Um, and how is that going to? How is Bob Melvin's slow hook going to impact what happens in San Diego? So it's it's all worth looking at. You mentioned in the article talking about beneficial conditions for pitcher wins, and the slow hook was one of them. Obviously, the deeper a starter gets into a game, the likelier he is to win it. And conversely, if there's a, a fast rip from the manager, then probably the reliever core on that team is likelier to set up for, for wins. But uh, what are some of the other beneficial conditions for pitcher wins? Uh, obviously, it's run support, uh, and but you got to look at run support in a couple of ways. The the quick and dirty way that most people talk about it is Patrick Davitt pitched in this game, and the Jays scored six runs, and so he's getting six runs of support. Well, it, how many runs did they score when Patrick Davitt was on the mound? That's the important part, because the runs they score per game and the games you're pitching doesn't mean much. But if you're in the game, and baseball reference does a really good job of separating this into runs runs scored per game start, runs scored per innings pitched. And that latter one is the category it speaks to when you're on the mound, how many are they scoring? Um, and I would really call this the Zach Wheeler, Brandon Woodruff thing, because if you look at the difference between uh, between runs scored and the run score when that pitcher was on the mound, Philadelphia and Milwaukee were two and three last year in the difference between the runs scored when the starting pitcher was on the mound and the overall runs scored. Number one was Tampa Bay, but Tampa Bay pulls all their starters early anyhow, so we know this. But you look at all those no decisions by Zach Wheeler and Brandon Woodruff, despite the awesome skills, that's why. Because Philadelphia and Milwaukee were scoring their runs later in games. And so these guys were out there doing what they could, but often they did, it, was a, it was a tie game. It was 2-2 two to two or something like that. Uh, and then they would break it out later against the uh, against the bullpen. But you know, in a, in a league where you're trying to get wins, it was very frustrating with both of those guys last year, particularly Woodruff. Normally, this is Jacob Degrom's uh, crown to wear, but he wasn't available much last year, so the, those two guys had to wear it. And it also seems to make sense that if a pitcher's a starting pitcher is in the game and it's tied and it's late, the manager is probably going to be more predisposed to going to the bullpen because he knows his pitcher's tired. Maybe they're on pitch count, some kind of pitch count regimen. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, and both edges are facing towards you in in that regard. As far as when the runs are being scored, though, Jason, is that sticky from year to year or team to team? It doesn't. It seems like it would be entirely random. Uh, it is, and I have a table out in the article, and so sometimes, like last year, Philadelphia, there was a run difference between their overall runs per game and when the starting pitcher, but the pre- two pre- seasons prior, it was about dead even, uh, but I put a table and put a three-year average, and it's like Toronto, your favorite club, has been above average in that each of the past three seasons, so the number is varied. Uh, and last year it was almost dead even between the two numbers, but previously they were like, uh, you know, 2020, they were much like Milwaukee and Philly was in 2021. Uh, but that's where the, the difference is when I look at it to say, Hey, where are things, the Dodgers, the Jays, a- Atlanta plays out favorably, the White Sox play out favorably. And that's kind of not surprising when you look at those offenses, uh, and what they've been able to do in recent years uh, and the Rockies, of course, um, you know, those have been the top five offenses and looking at where is the smallest difference on average over the past three seasons between what happens overall in a game and what happens when that starting pitchers on the mound. 
Yeah, it seems to me like that's a that's a metric that I would treat with a lot of caution because it does it does seem like that distribution would be random from year to year as far as team to team goes. And I like the idea, uh, obviously, of having very potent offenses to have starters on very potent offenses. I've been targeting Jays pitchers, and for the record, not because they're my favorite team. I'm a Reds fan, unfortunately, and and uh, but I know that Toronto scores runs. I mean, you you, right. you read a paper anywhere within a thousand miles of here, and and uh, it it always comes up. So. It's definitely a benefit that we should be thinking of. You also talked about when conditions are the ripest for reliever wins, and when is that? So a couple things I looked at. One was using the average leverage index, uh, looking at the times when these guys are coming in the mounds. You know, closers. Uh, you know, closers tend to work in the at the leverage index when it's two point or higher. Uh, but that that sweet spot is somewhere in the in the mid ones. And I put a scatter plot to show where wins are. Like for the the average Brett Suter, we mentioned him. He had 12 wins last year, and his average leverage index was one two. Um, but you look at some of the other guys that were eight plus wins, and they were hovering there in the in the mid ones. And so, if you're trying to target middle relievers, go back and look at when when that manager likes to use them. Go look at the leverage situation. If they're working mostly low leverage, it's just not going to play out. I mean, every now and then you may get a guy. I mean, I'm looking at the scatter plot. There was a guy that had seven wins that had an average leverage index below one, but he's kind of on an Island. So you go look at when these guys are being used much like as you, as you pursue hitters, I want a hitter and the guys hit, I need RBIs. You're not chasing a guy in the bottom of the line. If you're not chasing a guy in the top of the line, you're looking three, four, five. Well, if you're chasing middle relief wins, go look and see when this guy's being used and make sure he's being used in the seven, go look at his leverage index to see where he's being used. And that the closer that number is into the one five range or higher, better off if he's got something close to one or below one that's not the guy you need to target and i would mention that monitoring the leverage index of your relievers is also an excellent way to manage your team in season because you can start seeing if that leverage index starts dropping that the pitcher might be falling out of favor possibly Mm -hmm. because there's something the team knows about a a hidden injury that we're not privy to but generally speaking if a reliever's been seventh eighth inning in tie games or or within one run and all of a sudden he's sixth inning fifth inning you know kind of getting those those easier innings it's something to think about you might want to drop a guy earlier rather or trade a guy especially if he's got seven relief wins maybe somebody's interested but you know that uh, maybe things aren't all that they should be the other piece i looked at there was you know we talked about teams who pull their starting pitchers early. And I mentioned, you know, Tampa pulls their guys early. Well, they had 58 wins from relief pitchers last year because, you know, 40, only 40% of their, 46% of their starting pitcher outings went more than 80 pitches. And so they had 58 wins of relief. And conversely, you go all the way down to the Diamondbacks. They only had 22 wins of relief. They were a bad team, but 70% of their outings with 80 plus pitches by the starting pitcher. Uh, and so that tends to happen. You're, you're, you don't want to chase middle relievers on bad teams because you're not going to get wins there anyhow, uh, because Texas, Washington, and Arizona were the bottom three. Uh, but Oakland, you know, uh, you mentioned Petit had what, 10 wins? Well, they had 29 in relief as a team. Petit had a third of those. That's how unusual that season was. He's such a unicorn. It's great. But go look at teams with quick hooks. Seattle's another one. Seattle had 49 wins in relief. And their starting pitchers went 80-plus pitches 73% of the time. The Yankees had 48 wins. Uh, 69% of their outings went 80% of uh, uh, 80 pitches or more. And that's like Jordan Montgomery. If you haven't looked at him, he had 30 starts last year. He had six wins. He had 17 no decisions. 
it was crazy because the run support, you would think, oh, the Yankees offer all this run support. Jordan Montgomery was very much low, uh, very low on the totem pole for run support when he was in the game. But then the Yankees were scored uh, runs after he left. So he had 30 starts. He only had 13 decisions, 17 no decisions. That's a crazy amount of numbers for a guy. It's one of the reasons why I like Jordan Montgomery this year. Again. Yeah, I've been uh, seeing a lot of of touting going on of Jordan Montgomery, but why 80 pitches? Why did you choose 80 pitches as the uh, threshold where you're interested? I just wanted to see, so for, I'm trying to think, okay, 20 batters faced, four pitches per. I just wanted to look, it was, it's one of the thresholds that baseball reference has when you're, when you're choosing how many pitches are thrown. It was one of the cutoffs. So I just said, okay, 80, let's see what happens there. Uh, because if you went, if you go to 100 plus, it gets really, really small. So I wanted to say 80 because that at least gets you if the guy's pitching effectively into the fifth inning. Uh, because most of the times, it's not the innings count that these teams are monitoring; it's the pitch count. That's what they're trying to track over the course of the season. And so, if you can go out there and pitch effectively, and like, I, it's not all things raised, but I'll, you know, I'll say last year, Drew, uh, Drew Rasmussen did an awesome job of getting, you know, getting five innings on like 70 pitches, just really attack the strike zone. Conversely, a couple of years ago, that was Blake Snell's biggest problem coming off the Cy Young years. He'd have a 30 pitch first inning uh, where he just couldn't find his command, too many foul balls, and he was inefficient with his pitch count. Uh, and so when people are like, oh, they pull him after five, it's like, don't look at the five innings. Look at the fact that he's at 102 pitches at five innings. That's the problem. Uh, and so that's what teams are monitoring. The easy argument against targeting relief pitcher wins is that they seem to be like saves and that manager preference could play an outsized role. And we mentioned the run support, big rallies happening just when they're the most handy for a particular guy. How does that affect, in your mind, a relief pitcher-focused approach to looking for wins? Yeah, it definitely does. And you have to look, like I mentioned earlier, the fact that Bob Melvin's no longer with Oakland. Like, I have to look at Yusmero Petit and... Brent Honeywell and any other reliever in a different capacity and where you have new managers because they have yet to establish, uh, establish a trend or a manager coming to a new team like Buck Showalter going to the Mets. It's been a few years since you've had Buck Showalter in the league. We'll have to see how Buck Showalter, uh, does he hold to his old principles or has he, had, has he learned some lessons in the studio and uh, has changed things. And while we're talking about Buck Showalter, I would mention that go look at his stolen base track record as you're considering chasing Starling Marte. Uh, so that's part of the issue as well, uh, with that, but it's really, to me, these are all kind of tiebreaker things as I'm looking deep into a draft and like, okay, what am I doing? These are really kind of tiebreaker decisions. If I can't make up my mind between two pitches, this isn't something where I'm like all in on a strategy. It's just inputs, uh, into decisions. You're not filtering for these guys, in other words, particularly for right. those for those metrics. I understand. Okay, this has been terrific so far. Uh, Jason, let's take a quick break so I can tell the folks about Baseball HQ. And uh, we have the uh, First Pitch Florida online forum this weekend. I know you and I are sharing a, a uh, um, discussion. You're the moderator mm-hmm. of a discussion I think we're going to have about pitching with uh, Alex Fast, who knows a lot more about it than I do. So maybe I'll just throw in some jokes to keep the uh, keep the levity level up because uh, Alex Fast really knows his onions I'm telling you about pitching you don't want to miss that so we'll take a break come back in a couple of minutes all right all right Jason Collette writes the Collette Calls column at Rotowire, and he'll be back in a second. Right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Speculator column, Ryan Bloomfield looks at recency bias rebounds. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, we have three editions out this week looking at Mike Trout, 
catcher Will Smith, Joe Musgrove, A.J. Pollock, and a whole bunch more. And coming soon, Stephen Nickran's 2022 sleepers among batters and starting pitchers. I suspect Doug Dennis might be along with some sleepers in the bullpens. And there's going to be an alternative games column by Bill McKnight titled Score Sheet 2022 Defensive Range Changes and Focus on On-Base Percentage, also including the effects of the lockout on the Score Sheet Keeper Leagues. And those are just four articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation and facts and flukes, news updates and playing time today, roster forecasting and playing time tomorrow, assuming we ever get a season going. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse. There's terrific injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. And we have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, once the season gets rolling, we'll have tools, player projections updated every day. We have depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and a whole bunch of other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And hey, don't forget to check out First Pitch Florida, the fantasy baseball online seminars starting tonight, Friday night, and carrying on with expert presentations, interactive activities, and all kinds of other fun. I'll be there on Saturday at 5 o'clock, changing roles with our guest today, Jason Collette, and we'll be joined by pitcher lists, Alex Fast. We're going to talk about pitching and how changes in pitching are affecting fantasy baseball. Check out the whole First Pitch Florida online at the BaseballHQ.com site. There's a graphic over on the right-hand side of the screen. Click on that. You'll get all the scoop and a chance to register. Hope to see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Podcasts Plenty and Jason, uh, we talked earlier about your Colette Calls column on chasing wins. Another Colette Calls column looked at another Roto category, and you called the, the uh, column was titled the, the Need for Speed. And, of course, we know that that's going on, but why is it going on? What have stolen bases been doing that makes them so difficult for fantasy managers to manage? They've been disappearing. Uh, if you look over the last 10, the last 10 years, the amount of uh, stolen base attempts uh, has just gone down. Looked at something 36% fewer stolen base attempts uh, over the last 10 years. And, and the teams are getting better. Uh, but really what it comes down to is they're being more judicious on when they want to run. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not the game that we grew up with. Uh, I mean, I turned 50 this year and I, you know, I grew up in the, the, the Vince Coleman, Willie McGee, Ricky Henderson. It was, you know, it was fun. Uh, I miss the the Omar Moreno and uh, I'm drawing. Why am I drawing a blank on the guy that played for Detroit in the '70s? Uh, Ron LaFleur. Thank you. You know that that type of thing. You know, it's I, I missed out on that. But the, the the run 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 Cardinals. It's like okay, get on base in front of Jack Clark so he can drive us in type of thing. You know, uh, you go back and look at some of the success rates back then. They weren't great uh, for the most part. But the league is getting more judicious. Like 76 percent of stolen bases were done successfully last year and that's a that's a, the highest we've ever seen it so teams are just becoming more judicious but in order to do that they have to stop running as much and so when we look at where steals are across the league uh it's it's just everything's coming down um and it's becoming tougher to find if, if you and I, I wrote this because 
of the lessons I we talked earlier about me picking 15th and opening up with two starting pitchers by, by doing that and then taking a closer in the fourth. By doing that, I missed out on a whole bunch of players that contribute to this category because so much of the projected steals this year are front loaded. And then if you if you decide, OK, I'm out of that, like in the top 100, when I looked at the projected steals, 36 percent of the steals are in the top 100 of ADP. 22 percent of those are in the top 50. So if you do what I did and say pitcher, pitcher, starting pitcher, starting pitcher, and then I took Francisco Lindor, and then I took Classe at four, my first four picks, I had one guy that was contributing to that category. And all of a sudden, and then you get through the, and if I don't take another stolen base guy before pick 100, I'm almost 40% of the steals, projected steals are gone. And then you're almost, you're almost putting yourself in the direction to, I need to consider Miles Straw. You know, I've got to consider, I've got to find, because Miles Straw has been like the next guy that jumps up there. Uh, and there's been a lot of debate because Miles Straw is not a great hitter, uh, but he runs and, and Terry Francona is going to be back and Terry Francona likes to run. So there's some upside there, but I like to get, I like to be in a position where I'm, I'm not having to force myself down that swim lane where it's like, Oh, I'm going to Patrick and I both need speed. We're getting down there. We both got to get the Miles Straw because that's how you end up overspending in an auction. That's how you end up reaching too early. I mentioned earlier that certain points ADP goes out the window anyhow, but that's how you end up reaching too early in a snake draft. When you see, when you're, especially if you're on the turn, you're like, oh boy, I need this speed. And there's no way Miles Straw is making it back to me. I'm taking him here in the eighth round. I don't care what people say. And it's like, uh, but that's what happens. Uh, and so I try to say, you know, here's where the speed distribution is. Understand it's front loaded. So if you're in a snake draft, uh, you know, auction, you obviously you have more control over this, but if you're in a snake draft and you decide you're going to go heavy pitching early, understand what you're giving up. Uh, and this is, it's really tough to make this up without pigeonholing yourself into certain players later in the, uh, later in the draft. And depending on your draft format, this, you, I don't think you really can do what I'm about to suggest in a, uh, NFBC style league where there's an overall, but in your home league or in a league that you're playing when it's just the, the 12 or 15 guys you're with, and there is no overall I'm seeing in some drafts already this year so far, a lot of punting of the category because uh, people mm-hmm. are saying, I don't want to take mile straw and destroy that part of my offense. Because if you have a mile straw, especially if you take him at the expense of a, I don't know, Jonathan Scope or somebody like that, you're giving up an awful lot of RBIs as well. You're giving up all the home runs that you could have had. And those categories tend to play into each other. And I think Miles Straw is actually for all his speed is not a real good batting average help either. So there's a lot there's a lot of negative implications of a strategy that says I'll wait and, and go after the Miles Straws of the world. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's it's it gets tough because you have to, and, and steals, you could say, oh, you're in a free agent league. You have fab. Like, oh, I'll just go buy them. Well, they don't come up to, it's it's a really tough saves is one thing. Like closers, we know the volatility we can find saves in year, uh, within a year. Speed doesn't just show up out of nowhere. Uh, and sometimes it's it's an opportunity thing um, where somebody gets the opportunity out of a job and all of a sudden they can use those skills. But that's the last category I want to be chasing throughout the season is trying to find steals because they're incredibly unpredictable. The manager may decide, oh, I'm not running anybody this week. And you go look at, you know, week to week stolen base totals, even the good ones may have one over a two week period. And then they may have four in a game. Uh, and so it's just really tough and not the category that I want to be chasing throughout the season with my fab money. 
It's also pretty situational, uh, and teams are getting way smarter about choosing their spots. And uh, in response to that, teams are also focusing more on not letting other teams steal. And we, we've seen, you know, catchers working on pop time and pitchers being coached how to get the ball to the plate more quickly and mm-hmm. how to hold guys on and, and those kind of things. Everything seems to be mitigating against stolen bases. And I wonder down the road, you mentioned uh, being a guy who grew up in the Vince Coleman era, as did I. I'm a little older than you are. I was a Reds fan. I am a Reds fan. And I know that when people think about the Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine years, you know, 70 through 77 or whatever it was, they won two World Series, the second in 1976, 210 stolen bases they had. Everybody thinks they were station to station and just wait for Johnny to rip one or or Joe Morgan to rip one. 210 stolen bases. They led the league by 60. And now 210 stolen bases might end up being the total for a league, you know. And and it it is such a difference. Also, Jason, I wonder if we've seen the um, effects of a feedback loop in ADPs in that more people are realizing that what you're saying is true and it's pushing up the mile straws of the world, their ADP starts to climb and more people start thinking, oh, his ADP is climbing. I need to get in on this action. And uh, it becomes a self-reinforcing thing where a guy like Miles Straw, I think he went in round nine in, in our draft, which seems to me like quite a bit too high. Well, he went in middle of round eight in labor, uh, the mixed labor draft on the Tuesday night or whatever that was, if he went, or Sunday I forget, but he went in the middle of the eighth round. Uh, and so when I started drafting this winner, he was a 12th round guy. Now, all of a sudden, he's in the middle of the eighth round because people are realizing uh, speed is kind of gone. Uh, and if you don't address it early, because I know the pocket aces strategy is popular. And again, if you're taking if you're taking away steals, if you're a pocket ace guy and I've got to have a closer too, you you put yourself in that swim lane. That's you're, you're heading either down towards a mile straw lane uh, or you're looking at uh Jonathan VR, you're looking at Leody Tavares. I mean, and, you know, situations with both of them. I would say, you know, VR is somebody who I was expecting, I would expect his ADP to jump if he, you know, once he gets a job, because he's a free agent right now. Uh, whereas, you know, Tavares is having a really good winter league. And I know he's coming off a terrible major league season because uh, people were taking him as highly as they were. And he, it was a big disappointment, but he's had a good winter league season. So perhaps he can rebound. But that's kind of those are your options. Those are, those are the guys when you look at the scatter plot. Those are the guys on the far right with projected steals. There just aren't that many guys hanging down there anymore. You don't have your, um, you know, your Essex needs. Your uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank and all the the, the old Jackrabbits. Uh, that's Herb Washington, uh, Darren Longs, Terrence Longs, Herb Washington. You don't have those guys, and nor do you really want them anyhow. Uh, but there are, just aren't any speed on. When I'm looking at reserve, like Victor Robles has now fallen into that guy. Like he's the guy going in the reserves. If you're looking for speed, that's your guy. Uh, and, and Victor Robles coming off last year, you know what his faults are, or, you know, Jaron Duran, who doesn't have the uh, job, doesn't have a clear role to playing time right now, but has the athleticism as we saw last year, um, or, you know, seeing what Michael Taylor's got left in Kansas city, but like, those are kind of your options. Um, and so if, if you get through the active part of your draft and like, man, I need to, I need to do something with speed. It's pretty much gone at that point, And you're just hoping for the best. Another way to address the issue I've read about a lot of touting going on is to ignore the guys who get a lot of steals or to 
don't pay what you have to pay for them, especially if it costs you in the other categories. And you, Trey Turner, Fernando Tatis, you're not losing anything by getting their steals. I mean, they're just good, fantastic, in fact, all-around players. But the strategy that some touts are now suggesting says just focus on those guys who get 7 to 10 but make sure every guy on your roster gets 7 to 10. And I think that might be a bit easier path. I just checked the other day on this, and, and of course you got a guy like Juan Soto. I mean, there's an all-around player. He could get 10 bags. But you, also later in the draft, your Brandon Nimmo's and your Adam Frazier's, Lane Thomas in Washington, uh, Max Kepler, if you can <laughs> if you can absorb mm-hmm. a 225 batting average. A.J. Pollock had a terrific year last year. He's probably good for 7 to 10 bags. I think maybe you can make up the shortfall if you don't get guys early by getting these kinds of guys all scattered throughout your draft. Right. And Derek Hardy had a thread on this earlier this week on Twitter. It was nice. Uh, you know, he said like, you know, you have a player, player X was 40 for 40 in steals last year. How many steals would you expect him if you're drafting him this year? And he said the most likely outcome is 28. Uh, so even though he was 40 and 40 and perfect, he could be 28. Uh, and so the stolen bases are really noisy in that regard. And like you think of a guy like Paul Goldschmidt, he was 12 for 12 last year. It's like awesome. As a 33 year old first baseman, he was 12 for 12 in steals. But from 2019, from 2018 to 2020, he had 11 steals in total. So that's how noisy. 7, 3, 1, 12. And he got older, but he didn't went 12 for 12. So stolen bases gets very noisy. Uh, this is why you look at things, you know, the conditions, the managerial tendencies. That's why I mentioned Buck Showalter earlier. He tends not to run his guys. Go look at what he did with Baltimore. Um, and so it's it's like a it's something in my head. If if I'm in an NL or a mixed draft and Starling Marte's there, and I'm looking at two guys that I value Marte and somebody else, I'm that may lean the other direction with that um, because of that factor. So it's something to play into. You mentioned controlling running games. Your Reds were the best at it last year. Um, Kyle Bodie uh, works for the team. Driveline Baseball talked about how they worked uh, about hold times, throwing over, uh, lowest uh, attempt rate against the Reds last year is like 6.6%. Uh, and so that's one of the things that teams are doing. Um, and, and catchers are, teams are willing to carry catchers that can control the running game. I mean, look at the Astros. Martin Maldonado, not a hitter. But El Machete can throw anybody out that he wants to. Uh, and so teams are now willing to sacrifice that. They're like, you can throw. I and mean, Austin Hedges is still in the league for a reason. Uh, can't hit, but he's in the league throwing runners out. You mentioned in the column a potential game changer who's been going in the fourth round or so because he's got a lot of warts, uh, but the pick creates problems of its own. Who are we talking about and why? Uh, it's Alberto Mondesi, uh, the modern-day Billy Hamilton. Uh, and I, I say that not – Mondesi's got more power, obviously, but it's just like when you look at the rest of the skills, the very low walks, the high strikeouts – the problems with injuries uh, and it's like Mondesi could be a game changer, just like we thought Hamilton was going to be the game changer. If Mondesi could stay on the field, you know, he's the only guy that we could safely stay say would steal 50 plus bases if he could stay on the field. But even his own GM has not talked about him as an everyday player as they got to the end of the season last year. And, uh, you know, through the winter, they've talked about giving him days off. They don't know if he can be an everyday player um, because frankly, he's only shown up in September um, in the last couple of seasons. So it's like last year I took him in tout and he got hurt right before the opening season, which really stunk. Uh, and because I mentioned this earlier with Turner, like if you take Mondesi, he can't be, you can't say, okay, I'm done with steals because if he does what he does, which is miss time, then you're done in steals uh, the other direction. So you, you got to take him and you got to do other things. So you can't just say he's my guy. Cause he's just not, he has traditionally not, he hasn't proven himself to be 
balanced enough in his in his stats. Now we could look back at what 2018, be like, wow, let's let's do that. Or, or if he could stretch out September into like at least three months of the season, it would be fun. Um, but it's to me, so many of us have been burned by having him on a roster. Yet here he is. The only reason he's still coming in the fourth round in some of these drafts is because of what he could potentially do in the stolen base category. But I mean, he is safely going. I have not seen him fall out of the fourth round in a couple of weeks. You mentioned uh, Jonathan VR. Here's a, a possible 20 steal guy. He's had more than that in his career. He's getting a little older, of course. He's still a free agent. And we can ignore Jonathan VR in particular unless you're interested. But how are you considering free agents in your draft planning, considering the fact that we know that a lot of these guys would have been signed by now had there been an opportunity to sign them. So when you look at a VR or other guys who are out there on the free agent wire, how are you managing their risk when you consider including them in your draft planning? Yeah, it's really tough. So like in labor tonight, the top 12 free agents by ADP as of January 1st are not eligible to be nominated uh, tonight. And so like a guy like VR is but if he signs with the National League Club, you can get a 50% rebate on it. So that's going to control prices like that. Uh, so you know we've got to go in and zero out. We can't you know we can't toss Freddie Freeman, can't toss Nelson Cruz, uh, different types like that. And we're going to have this babapalooza between the end of the draft and whenever the season starts to get those guys into the pool. Um, so it's it's a little weird. Like I know previously I haven't really given those things much uh, credit in in labor. Like I think last year or two years ago I, I took. Uh, Yasiel Puig only because the outfield options were just gone at that point and I needed a final outfielder I'm like you know what that's I'll take the dart on that happening and him coming to the AL more than I want any of these other guys uh, so I try to get out of those situations you know with with BR in particular I will tell you he's the guy that I want to jump up and take in TTFBI here because I need a third baseman he's at third base and I have for speed I've got Turner I've got some from Teoscar Hernandez you know a handful from Wander Franco um, a, a small handful from Avisail Garcia. I've got uh, Seiya Suzuki, who we don't know what he's going to be able to do. I would love to get one more steals guy and, by the way, address a very shallow position. And I know I'm going a little higher than ADP here, but if VR had a job today, there's no way his ADP would be where it is right now. Because um, most likely he's going to, or he's going to sign, uh, you know, he could be in a place where he's going to play quite a bit. Now, uh, like if he could go to do what he did in Baltimore, I mean, he tends to like to go somewhere where he can play. And so now he's got control. My hope is he lands somewhere where they're going to play and let him compile like he has. Um, and so I'm looking to take him here with the last pick of the 14th round, as long as the guy in front of me doesn't take him before me here in the next four hours. It is a bleak steals landscape, but in your column, you mentioned there's a possibility that steals might make a little bit of a comeback this year. Uh, how did you figure uh, so the reason why I'm looking at that is because, you know, baseball got caught red-handed uh, dealing out different baseballs uh, in different parks last year. Uh, and if the, if the league is going to standardize on the type of baseball and they standardize towards the softer one and not the rabbit mall, then teams are going to want to find a different way to produce runs uh, and stolen bases would be the way to do it. And the fact that they're trying, they're talking about increasing the size of the base from what is it, uh, 18 and a half inches to 20 inches, something they're trying to increase the size of the, of the base uh, to encourage more stolen bases. Because one of the criticisms about this game is there's too much standing around. Uh, like I said, you know, we grew up watching these guys run and it was the stolen base is fun. Like triples are fun, but the stolen base, and if the league wants to encourage stolen bases and they put a uh, the, the softer baseball into play, then teams can 
get back to running because they want to, they don't want to be stationed to see they're stationed to station because of the ease of the home run, but if the home runs tougher to hit, then they got to get these guys in the move. And you know, we talked earlier about the, the problems with the Yankees consistence of run support. You know, that was one of the ballparks that got the debtor baseballs. Um, and so for a team that's built around the home run that all of a sudden saw the ball wasn't going as far as it was, they didn't have the skills to turn around. Yeah. They had Tyler Wade in the roster. They used him as a pinch runner, but most of that team was built like a softball team. Uh, and so they didn't have the ability to go steal those bases. Um, Glaber Torres, I think at 14, 15, he was one of those guys they were putting on the move to do that. But that's what I'm looking at. If that can, if they, um, they're looking for ways to encourage it. If the baseball is standardized towards the, the lesser end of the, um, uh, elasticity, if you will, then I, I believe steals are on the way for a comeback because we've seen this before. I, I've mentioned the 10 year trend, but if you look at the 40 year trend, we had a bounce back um, in the late nineties, I, I believe it was, but we've had a bounce back where steals were trending down, 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 all of a sudden they bounced back up uh, and the league started running again. So I want to see how that plays out uh, again. Um, because it, I can't believe this is going to be fully linear like this, and it's just going to continue to go down, down, down like this, and we're never going to see it. But we did have a bounce. I'm looking at it now. I'm sorry. It was 2000, um, that late, uh, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11. Steels were on a five-year incline, and then since they dropped. So that's been right before this 10-year trend that we're in. We're on a five-year increase in stolen bases. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see where the league goes from there uh, because they, they've they had it before because that five-year increase came after a six-year decline. So, you know, kind of like the stock market goes up, goes down, uh, but it's been on a, a big uh, downward trend over the last 10 years, but I refuse to believe this is the new norm. So has the stock market, at least as far as tech stocks are concerned, I can tell you. Uh, at the same time, Jason, do you, that 2007-11 uh, period was home runs a factor in declining over that same period. Of course, that's coming out of the steroid era and the crackdown on them. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Cause I, I didn't take a particular look at where the numbers, where everything was in the play, but that's a good point uh, where that was right at the prime time of the Mitchell report and all of that. Uh, and the coming out of that. So steals did start. That I mean that upper trend started in 2004, uh, which is, Hey, that is the Mitchell report here. What do you know? So I think you're onto something there, Patrick. <laughs> Yeah, home runs do go down a, a little bit from 2,800 to 2,400 in 2010, uh, 2,800 in uh, 2003 and about 400 fewer uh, by five years later. So, yeah, maybe they, they, crack, they crack down on what's causing the home runs, stolen bases go up. And now we don't have steroids. Well, we don't have acknowledged steroids in the game anymore, but the ball is juiced and if they've changed that that changes the offensive environment and maybe that works for all of us and i hope the i hope that it does because like you said i was listening to a bill simmons podcast where he had theo epstein on who's working for major league baseball to improve the game and make it more presentable more exciting and what he said was exactly what you said there's too much standing around guys are just standing anchored to their bases waiting for somebody to cloud a three-run home run and they canvassed the fans they did a giant poll scientific poll of of baseball fans and they said what are the things you want to see most in baseball number one was the stolen base as you said number two was a triple as you said and number three was exciting plays in the field and none of those things happens in a strikeout home run environment yeah three true outcome game is what we're watching as joe sheehan has has often uh, said and we need to need to do something to adjust it don't talk about 
adding shifts. No, no thanks. Let's encourage more activity uh, and, and stolen bases, you know, making the base a little bigger. Great. If at the same time, can we get rid of his, his hand popped up for a millisecond? No, we're going to overturn and get rid of the review calls on stolen bases. Maybe that'll encourage more running because, you know, it's, it's tough to slide there and stay on the bag with the, the pop up and the pop down. The obvious ones, sure. But these like his hand may have come off by a sliver and we're going to call him out. Maybe that's what's deterring some of these teams to run. And if we get rid of that and say that's not a reviewable play, um, maybe teams will run more. I wonder about that because it seems like what we know or what I've discovered in doing research about this is that those calls, the close calls at, at second base are a coin flip. The umpire might get them right, he might get them wrong, mm-hmm. is what it boils down to. So if they stop reviewing, you're going to gain all the ones that you lose because his hand came off by this much, but you're going to lose all the ones where the guy was safe and got called out because the umpire just got it wrong. So I think that's going to work out to be a wash, yeah. The yeah. other thing that's missing, I think, is base running skill. Some teams have the Ricky Hendersons of the world come in and and be a special coach to teach stolen bases as a technique matter because he was stealing bases long after his peak speed uh, was was gone because he knew what he was doing out there. And one of the things I think I haven't seen in a major league game in 20 years is a hook slide. Nobody seems to know how to do a hook slide anymore. And if they they all just go in pop-up, and a lot of them pop up by by letting their folded knee hit the bag while their foot stays a foot above it as they slide over. That's right. And that's why they yep. get called out. That's why the manager goes, I don't want this guy trying to steal bases because he doesn't know how to stop. And uh, there's a lot of things I think that could be coached into the game that we've lost over the years. Yeah. And the other piece of that is like, they don't want guys going head first. Uh, that's the whole Tatis concerns. Like he only knows how to steal going head first. And if he pops his shoulder out, Oh, that's going to be bad. Uh, but I was uh, there's a, a scout uh, a scout that I follow on Twitter talked about how he is he gets frustrated by the, the lack of fundamentals in some of the game talking about how some of the games he goes to at the at the prep and collegiate level where guys are stepping on the back half of first base as they're running down the line it's like you're coached early on step on the front corner of first base and he's like if I could get if I could get a dollar for every time I see a kid stepping on the back half of first base I'd be a rich man and that's like today and that's one of the fundamentals that you're taught early is you get for the front part front corner of the bag and when you're going from you're trying to run from first to third get the corner of the bag don't touch the bag uh on top that type of thing so all these fundamentals but base running is a skill because if you're not gonna uh you know obviously runs aren't going down and so if you're not stealing bases you have to be able to take the first and third on the single and there are teams that are really good at that and there are teams that are poor on that you can see that you can go to baseball reference and look that up as well and there are teams that make up for that by they're good base running and how many times there's a, there's a particular stat in their, in their results, XBT, extra bases taken. How often, how aggressive is that team? You know, Joe Madden used to be great about that. He's like, I don't care if you make an aggressive mistake. We make a, there's a difference between a stupid mistake and an aggressive mistake. Um, And so he would encourage the guys to take that. And that's like, like Joey Wendell doesn't have a ton of speed, but Joey Wendell can get from first to third because he's a really good base runner. Uh, and so sometimes these things don't show up on stolen bases, but uh, these guys, the guys that know how to run the base can get themselves in good scoring position um, by going from first to third, where the other guy's standing on second with two outs. Now he's on third with two outs and, you know, wild pitch, that guy's in on a run. Uh, can't score on a wild pitch from second most of the time, uh, but every little, every little extra bit counts. It does. And, and I wonder if the shift might improve if, 
uh, or might become less of a factor in baseball if guys were just a bit more capable of hitting the ball in a direction rather than trying to pull every single pitch. And maybe that'll that'll help as well if the ball has been de-juiced enough that uh, they have to do something to create runs. And maybe you're, what we used to call a slap hitter will come back into yeah. vogue, and they tend to be base runners. Indeed. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire. And uh, Jason, we're reinventing our uh, pick players thing uh, for the last couple of years. We've called it slumps, pumps, dumps, and jumps, I think, which nobody liked, including me. It was like the one thing I've got more mail at baseball, bhqradio at gmail.com than anything else that has ever happened on the show. Everybody wants boons and banes, so boons and banes it is. We'll cut it down because there's really not much to boon or bane about at this point. But who's a boon hitter for you for 2022? Uh, so boon hitter I have down, uh, and but the boon pitcher, they're both going to be from the same team. But the boon hitter is Avisail Garcia. Um, I love that he signed in Miami uh, for a free agent. Uh, I look at I look at this a lot for the same reasons I loved Adam Duvall going to Miami from Atlanta last year before he then went back to uh, before Duvall went back to Atlanta. Um, but Garcia is going to be hitting in the middle of that Miami lineup. Um, and just like Duvall last year had the opportunity, Duvall, you know, you'd win a lot, probably some bar bets if you said that Adam Duvall was the NL leader in RBIs, because nobody guesses that, but he was. Um, and he did a lot of that damage uh, in Miami. And so Garcia going there uh, is going to have the opportunity to drive in a lot of the runs that are in front of him. He's going to play every day. Um, you know, he still he still steals a handful of bases, uh, not as much as he used to, but he's got the athleticism to help in all five categories. But I look at this as a volume play and I continue to find him undervalued in drafts. You know, I, I took him uh, recently. I took him in the uh, at the end of the 10th round. And for somebody that's going to hit the middle of the lineup with the 10th, the RPI potential that he has, I'm just surprised that he's still making it down that far. How about a Boone pitcher from Miami, I'm going to guess? Yeah, and I'm going to reference uh, Ryan Bloomfield's latest, uh, latest Bloom board uh, because he he recalls uh, that Jesus Lazardo was a was picked as high as 76 in a main event last year, 76, and this year he is his his ADP is 285. So what happened to Jesus Lazardo from people that take him as a, nearly a top 75 overall in the main events to now he's barely inside the top 300. Uh, you know, this is a kid that's from Miami. So he got the comeback home last year. Uh, you know, Miami did make some changes to how he's attacking batters. I would encourage you to go look at his last start of the season when he struck out 11 Phillies in five innings. Um, you know, we could see the potential. So for a guy, I love to target guys like this that, that everybody was so in on last year and is so out on this year. There's no obvious injury. Uh, you know, he did have the trade. They made some changes to him. I'm very much interested in Jesus Lazardo on my team this year. To the flip side, then, who's a Bane player, the guy you're avoiding this year as far as hitters? Uh, and this is a weird one, and you've got to hear me out, and that's Whit Merrifield. Uh, and I say this about Whit Merrifield because he is like the modern-day Wolverine. He's never missed – he's never spent time in the I.L., ever. And in this in this day and age, that's, like, impossible to sustain. I know that even, even Cal Ripken Jr. admitted he should have gone on the injury list a few times uh, with that. But Merrifield has never, ever – been on the IL and it's like for me if he if he avoids it again this year more power to him uh and I get I've had the opportunity to take him a couple of times and I have passed on him because I just have the concern we're talking about a guy into his 30s now that has played a ton of baseball um and we saw how that impacted 
Dustin Pedroia, uh, similar stature and whatnot. And I know last year, Merrifield, they told him he was going to play the outfield. And they're like, hey, you got to come back to second base. And they moved him around a little bit. Uh, and so that was part of the that was part of the issues uh, as well. But, you know, for me, I'm just concerned that like this is the year he gets hurt. And if he does, if he has a lower half injury for the first time in his career, uh, especially with all this weirdness in the offseason, then his production really falls off um, with a lower half leg injury because that's where his value is. His value is scoring the runs, stealing the bases and, and the volume that he provides. Um, but yes, multiple seasons to 700 plus plate appearances is just so tough to repeat. Go back and look and Marcus Simeon's kind of in the same boat. Uh, where it's just so tough to repeat that level of plate appearances year after year after year without something breaking down. And so that's my that's my fear with Merrifield this year. I remember hearing somebody talking about Semyon, um, and they mentioned like he really got into shape. Like he, he was one of those guys who hired a professional trainer and mm-hmm. working out eight hours a day. And I think that might stave off the effects of aging a, a little bit if you put that much effort into it and I don't know that what Merrifield is or is not doing similar things to try to stay in shape and uh, off the injured list something else about Merrifield though Jason I remember somebody on a podcast saying he only stole two bases or had two stolen base attempts last September and they wondered if that might be a sign that he's slowing down I don't know what do you think I'd be I didn't look at a September to see how that is Uh, that would be very interesting but when I looked at him you know, he was one of 39 players since the since 1995 to have three or more seasons with 700 plate appearances. The other ones, at, like at his age, he turns 33 now. Like Ichiro, Jeter, Biggio, Cabrera, Giles, Bagwell, and Palmero. That's it. Those are the guys with multiple seasons after age 33 of 700 or more plate appearances. Uh, and it's just, for me, it's really tough. The only guy at his age with back-to-back is Joey Votto. And that's first base. It's a you know different position. He doesn't have the... Um, the taxing defensive responsibilities that Merrifield has an outfielder or second base. So um, again, I just, I'm just worried that this is the year that streak breaks for him. Uh, but I, yeah, I didn't see the September thing. Maybe it's because Mondesi was doing all the stolen bases in, in, uh, in September, like he always does. Yeah, it could be. So uh, I, I'm not going to swear that that's the actual case, but if you're thinking of Whit Merrifield, go to baseball reference or, or fan graphs, Get his splits for last year and see about the stolen base attempts at that time. Because uh, if it's uh, if it is two stolen base attempts, I think that is at least something you need to think about as far as his stolen base potential. And without mm-hmm. stolen bases, his his value drops five rounds, you know, or four rounds. He does a lot of other stuff well. I understand that as well. Bain pitcher. Pitcher would be Camilo Doval, uh, and Doval looked great in September. Looked great in the postseason. Uh, but let's not forget, this is this is still Gabe Kapler. And people, you know, this time last year, everybody was like, never Kapler. I don't trust anything. And then Jake McGee goes out there and gets 31 saves. Uh, you know, Kapler's track record shows that he will, you know, he will use what's available to him. And Doval, Doval's got great stuff. He's got an uh, amazing slider, throws hard. But Doval's also got a history of trouble throwing strikes. Uh, and that's not a skill that you want with your closer. And with, with Kapler having... 31 save Jake McGee and 13 saves uh, Tyler Rogers still uh, there available to him. Uh, he has options. And so I see Doval like in, in labor, uh, it went Floro, Doval, and Bednar. Um, you know, of those three, Bednar seems to have the, the strongest hold on the closer role because Pittsburgh and doesn't have any competition. Um, whereas Miami could sign somebody and Floro's not in that role anymore. But Doval's got two guys in house that have already done it. 
uh, and he's done it for a month. And so I've seen Doval go higher up there, but it's not going to be surprising to me uh, if Doval's the guy on the short end of the saves uh, in San Francisco if he has that control relapse. Because, again, just go look at his numbers throughout the minor leagues. And even uh, up until September last year, he just has difficulty throwing strikes. But he got on a heater in September and October, and it worked. Let's see what happens coming out of the season. Because it kind of reminds me of uh, when Kapler was managing Philly, and he had Sir Anthony Dominguez that one year. He had 16 saves. Everybody was like, all right, Sir Anthony. And then Sir Anthony came out the next season, couldn't throw strikes anymore. Uh, then eventually got hurt and went out with TJ. And Hector Norris came in got all the saves. And so... Uh, it, we've kind of been there before with Kapler. I'm, I'm not wishing injury on Doval, obviously, but when a guy's struggling to throw strikes as long as he has, uh, yeah, that's not something that a manager is going to feel comfortable leaving out there in the ninth inning on a consistent basis. You mentioned Floro in Miami. Uh, I've been hearing a lot of tout buzz on Anthony Bender there. Yeah, that's it. That's another reason. Uh, Bender's, Bender's got the better. So, I mean, Floro... You know, Flores is a great guy because you could use him in the seventh, eighth, or ninth because of the way he uh, keeps the ball on the ground. If if you need a double play, like he's the guy you want to bring in. Uh, and you know, Mattingly with his uh, with his style tends to uh, use the bullpen in more rigid roles. But you watch Bender pitch, you're like, oh, that could be a closer. That's just an opportunity waiting to happen. Uh, much like Bednar, Bednar wasn't a closer, but you you watch David Bednar pitch, you're like that could be a closer. So I know a lot of guys that picked him up last year on the cheap, and now have a cheap closer in keeper leagues. Yeah, I think the risk with Bednar might be the opposite. He's too good, and uh, of course Pittsburgh constantly rebuilding might see a, a trade value there, and he'll go somewhere and have the dreaded uh, setup role behind an established closer as a Very contender. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That can be a problem. Uh, Jason Collette's Boons have a Sail Garcia of Miami and Jesus Lazardo of Miami. His Baines, Whit Merrifield of Kansas City, Camilo Duval of San Francisco. Gosh, Jason, uh, I asked you to do this on short notice. Uh, you're a trooper, I'll say that. Uh, and I really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Jason Collette. Sure. So on Twitter at Jason Collette uh, and uh, my Collette calls column at Rotowire typically runs on Wednesdays. Uh, we've talked about the last two, but if you want to go back and look at the, the history of that column, the previous six uh, were my bold predictions for the year. So I did a hitter and a pitcher for all 30 teams. And so there's 60 guys in there. Uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned a few of them here. Lazardo is definitely one of those. Um, I believe Garcia and Maryfield uh, were one of those. So Doval may even be one of those. I forget exactly where I went through, but so I may give you a small sample of 60 with those four picks uh, that I just made, but uh, please go look at those. Um, and then let's see, tonight we have the labor draft. A um, couple of weeks we'll be in tout uh, and yeah, that's it. So you'll hear me on a lot of podcasts uh, over the next few weeks or uh, serious XM appearances talking about uh, how poorly my drafts went because I'm always very critical of my own efforts. Uh, I'd like, complimenting other people, but I hate my own efforts. So we'll see how it goes this year. And we just didn't have enough time on this call to talk about your bold predictions, but I read all, all of them and, and they're terrific thought provoking columns that point out attention, not just to players that are going to be good, but some players that are, you're worried about. And I, I think, or not even worried about scared about it might, it might even be better. And I think the balance of, of upside bold predictions, downside bold predictions, and the the breadth of it. And there's a few other names that pop up in there as well. It was a terrific series of columns, and I recommend it as well. Jason, thanks so much for doing this. I know we, you got to go. you got things to do. I appreciate you doing this on short time. We'll talk to you soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Jason Collette writes the Collette Calls columns every week at Rotowire. Wire. <laughs> 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number four of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. Of course, I also want to thank our guest expert for this expert interview edition. It was Jason Collette, writes the Collette Calls columns at Rotowire. They're terrific. He's a good fantasy columnist. You should really be reading Jason Collette. He's excellent on podcasts, too. A lot of them, as you just heard, and a really good guy on top of everything else. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. I also have a personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with something, somebody. I'm working on it. Actually, I'm working on hooking up with the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey. We're just trying to match up our schedules, so I'm pretty confident. But we'll have someone terrific. It'll probably be Gene, but it'll be somebody good. And it'll be Tuesday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll see you Tuesday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.